When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the Keystone Pipeline? What influence does it have on our environment? And why did the Keystone XL Pipeline become so controversial? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. So it seems like if you want to pick a fight with anyone, all you have to do is say the simple words, Keystone XL Pipeline. This particular pipeline has been the center of our news cycle for quite some time. Part of that comes from our discussions about oil diplomacy. The decision to cancel the pipeline expansion has turned heads to other stable sources of oil distribution to the United States that are consistent with the environmental objectives of the Biden administration. But then others wonder if it could help us be more energy independent. So why was the expansion of the pipeline canceled? And would the Keystone XL pipeline help lower U.S. gas prices? And how exactly does it work? Well, there are a lot of questions to ask, but luckily we have the answers with geographer and professor at Arizona State University, Martin Pascaletti. And Martin joins me now. Martin, thanks for coming on to talk about the Keystone Pipeline. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm sitting here in Arizona looking at the blue sky. It's going to be about 100 degrees today. Uh, so uh, there you go. It's beautiful, actually, right you now. No, I, I think Arizona is one of the best places on the planet. Do you agree? It is. I, I, I just found out that they're, they're not making any more water. So it is a concern. Um, <laughs> so we have to worry about that a little bit. But it is uh, it's just everything you can imagine. And most people don't even realize how good it is. I agree. I agree completely. Well, I wish I was in Arizona right now, so I I, um, don't appreciate you rubbing it in, but I guess we'll I guess we'll move forward. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Uh, Okay. so just for our listeners, what is the Keystone Pipeline? Well, the Keystone Pipeline is a pipeline that's going to be coming from uh, Alberta, Canada, down to uh, Steel City, Nebraska, about 1200 miles long. It's about 36 inches in diameter and it's it's to bring um, somewhat over 800,000 barrels of oil uh, per day, uh, f- mostly from the oil sands of northern, northeastern Alberta, Canada. So where does this oil come from? Well, most of it's going to be coming from the oil sands, sometimes called tar sands. Uh, there's 170 billion barrels of uh, oil has been identified in these uh, tar sands of northeastern uh, Alberta. Uh, and the, but the oil is locked up in the sand itself. So the trick is how do you get the oil away from the sand particles and refine it and take the sulfur out and all those other things you have to do uh, before you send it down here. So that's where it's coming from. It's an enormous resource. There's just no doubt about it. It's uh, uh, it's it's one of the largest uh, uh, areas of oil reserves in the world. Uh, but that's- it is it's not just uh, oil. I mean, it is it is uh, and we'll get into this, but it, it is tied up in the sand itself. So they call it oil sands. That's fascinating. I actually want to dig into that a little bit deeper. How do you separate the oil from the sand? What's that process like? 
Well, it's a complicated process and it takes a lot of energy to do it. Uh, but if you can imagine kind of holding in your hand uh, the, the darkest black sand that you can imagine, maybe even in Hawaii, you held black sand in your hand. This is like that, uh, except between the little grains and the particles, uh, almost microscopic is uh, are little pieces of oil. So the trick is, how do you filter out the oil from the sands itself? Uh, that is that is a very in, intense process. Uh, it takes a lot of energy actually to get the oil out of that, uh, and it's a whole process that they do right there in uh, in Alberta. Uh, so the and it's a complicated you know uh, business to try to do that, and they're trying to get the sulfur out as well. So I've been there, and they have uh, gigantic blocks. I mean, it's very hard to describe how big these are. Uh, of sulfur, uh, which they've taken out, and they have huge uh, wastewater ponds. It's the biggest, um, uh, which you could, the people who don't like it kind of say it's the biggest scar uh, on the planet from oil development, and it's, it, it is big. Uh, there's a discussion of how to do it without all that surface impact, but uh, that's, uh, that's still not happening yet. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, if you want to get into a political conversation with anyone, you just bring up the Keystone Pipeline because people definitely have their opinions about it. But I, I would like to maybe go through kind of the thoughts that people have on both sides of mm -hmm. the aisle and we can just um, do it matter of factly. But first, I do I want to I want to know more about how this works. So they separate the oil from the sands and then it goes mm -hmm. into pipeline correct how does it is is it how do you get it from the filtration process then into the pipeline well the the filtration process there requires an enormous amount of uh, natural gas uh, they need a lot of heating uh, and reforming um, to to soften it up and to refine it out of the sands the sands are then of course uh, discarded uh, and they're discarded into these gigantic surface uh, pits of water, uh, and it leaves the oil behind. So the key is it, it's a kind of a filtering process where you're trying to get it out, but it involves a lot of heat, a lot of hydrogen, which they get out of the natural gas. So the, the, the process is complicated, and you can't go into it really here, but anyone who's interested uh, can look at uh, YouTube and find this this whole thing described in great detail. But it is it is just a way of filtering out the oil from the sands itself, separating it. You can separate anything from anything nowadays, either chemically or or uh, or physically with filters. Uh, so there's it's it just takes a lot of energy to do it, and it has a lot of impacts. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's not like drilling down and the oil gushes up. Uh, that is that is. The, not the way this works. Uh, it's a very different process. So it's a huge reserve, um, but it's difficult to get it out. And uh, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy to, to get it out. Uh, and then it produces um, all sorts of other things, CO2, sulfur, and a variety of other things. And they finally then uh, put it right in the pipeline there, and they just pump it wherever it wants to go. So uh, we, get, we get more of our oil, our imports from Canada than we get it from any other country. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, it's very convenient. I mean, it, there's all sorts of advantages to have uh, Canada supply us with oil. So. What are those advantages? Well, you don't have any oil tankers, for one thing. So there's no interceptions. There's no oil spills. There's no piracy. There's none of those things. And uh, we're on fairly friendly terms with Canada. <laughs> so it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, we're, we're not kind of getting into the politics. Uh, everybody gets along quite nicely. So 
it's it's right next door. That's a big advantage. Mm-hmm. And but we've been getting a lot of conventional oil from Canada for a long time. It, and a lot of it comes out of uh, out of Alberta, Calgary, uh, and Edmonton. I mean, it just that's where the oil is. There's other places in Canada, but that's where the majority of the oil uh, comes from the, into the United States. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Now, we've been talking about the Keystone Pipeline recently, um, recently being a relative term, but, you know, it's been in the news for the last year or two and um, especially so. When did the Keystone Pipeline first start its construction? Well, you know, I, without looking it up, I don't exactly remember, but it's been over 10 years. Um, it seems to me that uh, it's, it's well over 10 years because it, it was under construction, I think, even before Obama got in. Uh, and then he blocked it. And then President Trump unblocked it. And then Biden blocked it again. Because to come across an international border, you have to have a presidential permit. This is true of oil that comes from... Uh, uh, from Mexico as well as from Canada, so the and, and it was that presidential permit. Uh, Trump signed it, uh, but then uh, then uh, President Biden uh, rescinded that. So it's not operating, although it's mostly complete. Okay, so do you foresee um, a time when the so if, if if it's complete, pretty much that it would start working again? I mean, obviously it's depending on politics, but do you see a time where that might be? <laughs> I've never known a pipeline and has, has received more attention than the Keystone XL mm-hmm. pipeline, both positive and negative. Uh, certainly, on the, and we can talk about the pros and cons of this if you want, but, but the, the, I've never seen so much controversy about it. So whoever is in the White House has the authority to permit it. So it rather depends who's going to be there. I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to start operating while Biden's still in there. Let's break that down a little bit more. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the U.S. continues to import about 9.1 million barrels of oil per day from 90 countries across the globe. And as you mentioned, Canada is a big resource for us when it comes to oil. Mm -hmm. Um, So for people who are for the pipeline and, and want it to be up and running, what do they think about it? Why do they want this pipeline so badly? Well, it's kind of the public view, and then there's the the industry view. So I was in the gym this morning, and I was talking to a fellow. He was on the treadmill, and I said something about the Keystone XL pipeline. He said, well, yeah, if we can get that, it'll uh, help our uh, oil prices. Well, it really won't in the short term um, affect our oil prices. All these, we can get into how you set your prices of oil sometime, but um, but it's not going to affect the oil prices appreciably. First of all, it's it's not all that much oil. Secondly, a lot of it was going to be ex- exported. Third, we're already exporting three and a half million barrels a day. So we're ex- we're a net exporter of oil in this country. Uh, we import oil, we export oil. It depends on the economics and where you're sending it. Uh, so uh, it's not that we absolutely need this oil. So you, the, the kind of the, the public who is in favor of the pipeline thinks it's going to be a big um, boon. Um, and then you'll produce a few thousand jobs while you're constructing it, but you, you'll produce, you know, less than a hundred jobs when it's in operation. So it's not a big job uh, creator. Um, so, but from an industrial standpoint, from the oil standpoint, of course, uh, it, I always say to my students, I said, it's, 
when we're talking about energy efficiency, for example, I say, you know, it's, it's always easier to convince um, a, a few people to make a lot of money than a lot of people to save a little money. Uh, so the, the, the few people in this case would be the oil industry and, the, uh, and then certainly Canada. I mean, where are they going to send that oil? Sending it abroad is a, is a far different project. Uh, so this is where they want to send it. Uh, and it's a very big deal for them, as you can imagine. If they were going to send, uh, you know, 800,000 barrels a day to us at $100 a barrel, you're talking serious money. So Canada is very much in favor of this. Not everybody in Canada, certainly. Uh, but uh, the industry is and uh, the government is because there's a nice, uh, there's a nice economic benefit of sending, sending it to us. Mm-hmm. We can get into into the whether or not we actually need that oil, but right. Well, yeah, that I would love to know because you know a, a big conversation also is just how would that pipeline help with the continental energy security and national security? What's the thought about that? Well, I, I was just looking up on uh, the Department of Energy's uh, website, and it said we're exporting about three million barrels a day. So if we're exporting it, you know, the question would be why do you have to import more? Um, and we're, we're really good at producing oil in this country. The, the, the price increase is just a supply and demand uh, consideration. I was talking to the former uh, president of BP uh, uh, China the other day. He happens to be at Arizona State University now. And, you know, we were discussing, you know, who sets the price of oil? And I, and I, kinda, I kind of figured out I knew already, but I asked him because he's a real expert. And he said, well, it's, you know, the price of oil is set at an international markets. Uh, and, and and what OPEC does, and OPEC plus, which is OPEC countries plus Russia, uh, they're really, they're really setting, the, uh, setting up the price of oil, and it really depends upon supply and demand. So what's happened in the last few years is our demand went way down with the pandemic. Uh, and so everybody shut in their wells, they laid off oil workers, uh, they closed things down, uh, because nobody was there around to buy the oil. Uh, so now suddenly everybody's uh, freed up again and they're traveling and they want the oil and they want the oil now. So the demand is much higher than the supply. Uh, and that's what's driving the price of oil up. And, and, and he made an interesting point. He said, if you want to really uh, curtail the use of oil for purposes of global climate change and so forth, um, decrease the demand. Uh, and so decreasing the demand is, 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 instead of fighting all these battles all the time or having geopolitical discussions and which we're getting uh, of course from the Ukraine situation um, you know decrease demand and that demand is probably going to decrease as uh, as we move toward electrification of cars so it's a very it's tied into everything the price of oil the availability of oil supply and demand other technologies uh, it oil is the is the most um, uh, the, the biggest industry in the world. There's more oil and more money involved in oil than there is in any other industry. And if you just you just think about 80 million barrels of oil running around the planet every day at $100 a barrel, every tanker has $100 million of oil in it. Uh, it's it's an it's extremely profitable a business. The whole world runs on oil, but uh, we found the easy oil. And now we're looking for the stuff that's a little tougher. Yeah. I, I mean, how do we, without the Keystone pipeline, obviously now, now, you know, we, we, we learn a lot about all these different pipelines. You know, this isn't obviously the only one, but how no. do we become energy independent without it? Well, you're not going to be energy independent with it. So that's the other way to look at it. I mean, there's 800,000 barrels a day at max. 
Um, and uh, we use something like 20 million barrels a day. So, you know, it's less than 10%. Um, so, so it, and, and we're already exporting three and a half million barrels a day. So um, it becoming energy independent is not going to be, not going to hinge on whether this thing goes through or not. Um, energy independence is, is, is a very, a very slippery topic. Uh, and when, when you get into it and you start to get into the weeds a little bit, you find out, well, first of all, why would you do it? Um, <laughs> why would you try when, when you've got people who want to sell you your product, your energy, uh, and it's going to cost you a lot of more to, to do it here. Why don't you get it from somebody else? Uh, and then you say, well, of course, the economics would be if it costs us you know, $100 a barrel to produce oil in this country, but we can buy it for $20 a barrel from somebody else, why would we, why would we reduce it here? So that's what people say. Uh, the problem with that is that um, then you become dependent, as Germany has found out, uh, so dependent on oil and gas from Russia, uh, that they can't get out of it in a hurry. Uh, we could because we're not, we don't import hardly any oil from, from Russia, just a, a few percent of our oil. So getting to energy independence, you kind of wonder, well, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense if everybody's getting along all the time. Uh, it, uh, it starts to make a lot more sense when you want to be more independent right. of everybody. Right. It, it's very circumstantial, of course. I mean, you as a country, if you want to be a world power, you don't want to necessarily depend on anybody. But, um, you know, you could see the argument from both sides. As long as things are going well, then, yeah, it makes sense to be able to purchase it for uh, less. Well, just think um, about it from an, an individual household. Uh, you want to be independent? Uh, I know people in Arizona who are off grid. They're independent. <laughs> uh, they, they're not connected to the utility company. Um, and, it, and it's wonderful in terms of freedom, but they do have to adjust their lifestyle. Um, yeah. So uh, you want to be energy independent, uh, you, you've got to live a little differently and uh, you've got to make some changes in the way you, you uh, operate your life. Uh, so, if you, so what we do is that we aren't independent. We're tied into the grid. We're relying on utility companies. I always say uh, Phoenix in particular, which is kind of one thing I, I, I use a phrase uh, just to make sure that the kids are awake in class. Uh, and I say, well, you know, Phoenix is a black hole. And they, they all just kind of sit up, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, uh, all the energy that we use in, in Phoenix area, all the energy resources come from someplace else, except for a few, a few bits of solar. Uh, but uh, all the uranium, all the natural gas, all the aviation fuel, gasoline, um, coal, everything comes from out of state. Uh, we produce electricity within state, but we get all of our energy from out of state. So then you want to be independent. Um, that'd be a great place to start because we're so dependent upon pipelines bringing in our oil and our gas and our and uh, transmission lines bringing our electricity and the uh, trains bringing our coal and trucks bringing our uranium. Um, you want to be independent. It's going to cost you a lot. So we don't, we decide, no, no, we'll just rely on everybody running everything appropriately. But when things go wrong, you're thinking, maybe I want to be more independent. <laughs> no, right. it's kind of, you kind of look at it, you can look at it from the household standpoint of independence, from the state standpoint, you can look at it from the national standpoint. There's advantages to being independent, but there's a lot of costs associated with it. I can't imagine anybody falling asleep in your class. <laughs> so, well, I do have to wake them up occasionally. You got to whack the ruler against the table and wake yeah, them up. That's what you, we that's do what that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a squirt gun. Uh, yeah. But, uh, 
I like that. Yeah, you just yeah. squirt, squirt yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. in Arizona, they probably welcome it because yeah, it's so well, I would, I would be dismissed pretty fast. I think. Um, <laughs> I'm in full support if you want to do that. If I was All in right, class, I'll, and it would be tell, fine. I'll tell them. <laughs> You're gonna get me fired now. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. So then you talk about the environment and the Keystone Pipeline. That's obviously a big part of this conversation as well. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but something I was picking up from you at the beginning of this, when we first started talking was mm-hmm. the fact that in order to separate the oil from the sand, that's a big environmental hazard as well. So can you just break that all down for me? Well, you know, I, I, I had a grant from the Canadian embassy a few years ago and, and the, my proposal was to uh, look at the oil sands of Alberta. And so I, I looked at it. I talked to everybody. I went there. I had tours of the place. I, I talked to members of parliament. Um, and then I kind of thought about it for a while. I wrote an article uh, called uh, Alberta Oil Sands from Both Sides of the Border. And and at the end of um, when I was presenting the results of that in Ottawa one time, uh, at the end of the conference, uh, we were invited over to the uh, the ambassador's house. And so this is the U.S. ambassador. Uh, and so, um, and, and these guys are really busy people. So, but he was greeting us and being very, uh, very courteous. Uh, and he, he knew what I had done. He said, can you give me the 30 second conclusion <laughs> from, from your studies? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, yeah, I guess I could do that. And basically what I fast. said was, yeah. <laughs> um, well, from the U.S. standpoint, it actually is a pretty good deal. That is, um, we, get the, we get the oil. Uh, from the Canadian standpoint, it's not a good deal because they get all the environmental costs. Now, it, it, since, since then, uh, I, I've come to understand a little bit more broadly the consequences of actually in, uh, encouraging more and more oil uh, into the U.S. on this Keystone Pipeline. And part of that, most of the opposition is not necessarily against pipelines because there's hundreds of thousands of miles of pipelines, oil pipelines, in particular around this country, it's not just another pipeline. It's the, it is the, the idea that you are enhancing the future of fossil fuels even more and you are uh, at the same time jeopardizing the climate because you're pushing out uh, carbon-rich fuels. So, there's, so the, the, the arguments um, against it basically are at, at several levels. One, locally in Alberta, it's an environmental disaster. Uh, they have chopped up that environment tremendously. They've removed the boreal forest. They put in the biggest ponds you've ever seen. Uh, they have uh, leaking toxins into the uh, uh, into the Athabascan River. It, it produces two or three times more CO2. They have sulfur. There's all sorts of things environmentally right there. Uh, but more broadly, it is the the issue of do we want to encourage more fossil fuel use? And that's where the major argument against it comes from. So when you look at the environmental groups, they're, they're opposing it, not because it's another pipeline per se, although there's, there are those people who oppose putting the pipeline through certain places, um, but mostly it's do we want to continue to encourage fossil fuel use given the existential threat of climate change? So there's, there are different levels of argument uh, coming through the Sandhills of Nebraska. That's one local argument going through Aboriginal lands. That's another local argument. Uh, the Alberta oil sand development and the impact it has there is a major environmental impact. And then there's the larger argument is the climate argument. So there's a whole series of arguments. 
Okay. Oh, that's interesting. But you, so did you say that the Keystone Pipeline is only producing about 10% of our oil? Well, the, the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, just the addition is about 800,000 barrels a day. I see. I see. And so we, we use about 20 million barrels a day. So. Okay. So So, uh, pretty small. Okay. Um, well, that's why I was just wondering when people are opposing, you know, using more fossil fuels, if it's not that much in the grand scheme of things, but you you can also understand that argument as well. Um, a lot of things I was reading was, uh, were kind of centralized around the idea, kind of like you mentioned, you going through Nebraska and Illinois and digging up, um, you know, going through where these places have endangered species, things like that. So how mm-hmm. big of an impact does it have when it comes to those things? Endangered species, the, um, the land, those, those types yeah, of things. Yeah, well, there's... When you're putting in a pipeline, you're going to be digging a trench. So this trench, uh, you know, is going to be over a thousand miles long and, and at least four feet deep. So you're, you're digging down through a lot of stuff. Uh, and it's inevitable that you're going to be digging into something that uh, that's more sensitive. The Sand Hills of Nebraska, for example, those are very tenuously uh, affixed. It's, it's, it's the biggest sand dune in the country is really in sand hills of Nebraska. And it's covered with a very thin layer of grass and wheat and things like that. So it's very easy to disturb it. So I think they did get it um, repositioned out of there. Uh, if you're going through Aboriginal lands, that's a cultural issue. And there's no way around that unless you just avoid it completely. Uh, as soon as you work in a, an Aboriginal lands, you know, there's going to be either grave sites or there everything's, um, is uh, sacred in one way or another. So it's very hard to avoid that problem uh, unless you just reroute it. Uh, so there's, there's all that. And of course, then if you've got a, a pipeline that's over a thousand miles long, uh, you've got to count on every single weld of every single section of the pipeline being done exactly right and not corroding and not leaking ever. Uh, and uh, that's, so there's potential leaks associated with that. Uh, we had a, uh, a pipeline that broke between Tucson and Phoenix uh, several years ago, and, and there was no gasoline supply into Phoenix uh, immediately. Uh, that was the, that completely broke and it just corroded. Uh, it just had broken because of, it had been there for a long time. So there's always that there's always potential for leaks. Now somebody would, would the counter argument is, well, um, if you don't pull it down in a pipeline, you're going to take it in tankers. And it's, it's probably more hazardous to take it on, on rail than it is in pipelines. So you can make that argument too. And pretty soon you get so convoluted and so <laughs> intertwined with all these various things. There's an argument and a counter argument for everything. So if you just take it down to the very basics and you say, it's, it's not all that much oil. It's just, it's just one of the sources. There's a lot of other pipelines. Um, but if you, take, if you just take that 800,000, whatever it is, barrels a day, um, the, the, it, it, it's almost like a philosophical thing. If, we're tr- if we are really being threatened by global climate change, as I believe we are, um, then why would you encourage further use of oil when, in fact, we don't really need the oil and it's a, the dirtiest oil that you can produce? So there's, a, there's, there's arguments and counter arguments um, against both of these things. And anybody who's interested can, you know, it, it's all over the web. You can find all sorts of things. And after you get through reading it all, you think, well, now I'm confused. <laughs> so, so what do I, what, and so if you make the argument, most simple argument is it is not the direction you want to go. 
if you're worried about climate change. And they, the, uh, the IPCC just came, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just came out with a report a week ago, and it is more dire than I've ever thought. And we had a woman here, Karen Sito from, from Yale, and uh, she was on the panel itself, and she was talking about the conclusions. And it is very serious. Mm-hmm. It is very serious. And so it is, it is not going to stop oil being produced. It's not going to stop pipelines from being trenched. And it, you know, it's not going to stop it. But it's, 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 the argument is it, it's kind of, we're going in the wrong direction. And uh, we ought to be be able to able to figure out something else. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not asking you to solve the world's problems here because if yeah. you could, I mean, we might have to hire you for president, and, and we elect yeah. you. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, right. it's be I, a good solution. Yeah. Yeah, um, well. <laughs> but you know what? What is what is your idea? If you could have a perfect world of all right, so there's the argument that we need to be energy independent. We need to produce our own stuff, so we're not dependent on other countries. But then also, we don't want to harm the environment any more than we need to. Um, what would be the perfect solution? Uh, boy, if, if, if I knew that, I, 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 I would be president. Uh, the, as I see it, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of issues. First of all, oil is liquid, and it is, it's incredibly uh, valuable as a feedstock for thousands and thousands of products. It's just unbelievably valuable for that. Uh, everything that you can imagine is everything around your house, everything in the studio, everything it's all comes from petroleum. Uh, and, and that makes it an extraordinarily valuable uh, resource. Burning it would seem to be the least sensible thing to do with it. Uh, when you can convert it to plastics, you can convert it to fertilizer, you can convert it to medicines, you can convert it to cosmetics. I mean, everything comes from it. Um, so why burn it? So if you can, if you can get a, it, so it, the point is that it, it is a liquid fuel. So it becomes very useful in airplanes, for example. Uh, you can't imagine an airplane um, running on coal. Uh, there'd have to be a guy back there shoveling the coal <sighs> the entire time and trying to stay aloft, you know. Um, and uh, natural gas wouldn't work too well. But the, so oil was perfect for that. It was also great for automobiles. So it is a liquid fuel. So you have to kind of come up with a substitute for that. And getting back to my friend's comment, reduce the demand, that's one of the ways you can do it is to electrify uh, the, the fleet of motor vehicles around the country. The electricity comes from some place, that's another matter, but it doesn't have to come from oil. So we could become l- less dependent on oil if we electrified our whole fleet. So that's one thing. The other part of it is, um, I always, I'm a big advocate of the of solar energy uh, the, I was appointed by the governor, two different governors, as the chair of the Solar Energy Advisory Council for the state. And so I was a very strong proponent of solar energy. And there's limits, of course. But if you come to Arizona, you might see a lot of sun. So yes. <laughs> and you wonder, why isn't solar everywhere and all over the place in Arizona? Um, and, I, and I think, well, and, and keep in mind that it's a limitless fuel and it's free and it's pollution free for the most part. Um, and it's everywhere. You don't have to distribute it. It's already distributed naturally. So I would, I would electrify as quickly as I could. I would do everything I could to maximize the use of solar energy, especially in distributed 
configurations that would be like on houses, on buildings, on factory tops and things like that. And people are getting, getting the message there because they're realizing uh, what's happened just in the past few years is the cheapest electricity that you can get now is from solar, solar and wind. Uh, they're cheaper than nuclear or any fossil fuel. So get your electricity from solar, electrify uh, your vehicles, charge them with solar. Now you really got a bargain. Mm. The, 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 the downside of this, of course, not the downside, but the, the reality of this is that it, it takes a while. It takes a while to actually get to that point. We've got trillions of dollars of infrastructure out there for oil and natural gas and coal all over the world. And nobody's going to want to just abandon any of that. Uh, so it's going to take a while unless there's an existential threat. So I'll give you one example of how this is existential threat is actually moving things forward faster than it would otherwise. Germany imports about 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Right. They want to get off of that, but they can't do it quickly. And, and they import uh, a lot of oil. Now, what is motivating them, and they're being motivated strongly right now, is an, is an existential threat. They fear Russia. So they want to get off it as fast as possible. When you have an existential threat like that, you can do all sorts of things, convince the public very quickly that they need to move away from dependence on Russian oil and gas. So one of the, the maybe the only positive things I can think of that might come out of the Ukraine situation is that it's going to push the Western Europe to move away from uh, oil and gas and move more and more toward renewable resources. It's, it is because they can, they'll be able to do it politically faster if everybody feels threatened by Russia. Right. Yeah, that's that's actually a great point when you're when you um, face this existential threat, like you're saying, it's it's impossible to keep living the way that you're living. Um, I do think you're right. It, it kind of goes back to the conversation we're having about the pipeline is, you know, you could you could go back and forth all day long about, yeah, if everyone had electric vehicles, that would be great. Um, but then you have the negative effects of, you know, making the batteries and the nickel and the copper and the aluminum. And then mm -hmm. how do you dispose of it and the infrastructure? So you know, it's nothing if, if is easy. Could, no. no, it's not. There, there really are two sides to everything. But I think knowing both sides is important because then you can take with that and be like, OK, well, this isn't working for this side. This isn't working for this side. So let's come up with a common thing. And, you know, we should well, you we, know, we should and, do that and in politics, also, right? <laughs> right, right. And it depends on what kind of government you have. In a democracy, things go a little more slowly. Uh, than an authoritative uh, government uh, where you, someone just gives you an order and everybody carries it out. Uh, and, and the thing that will move uh, a democracy faster is having an existential threat like war. Um, you saw how fast everything moved during World War II. Uh, right. we, we when we got up to speed, there was no country in the world that could keep up with us. Um, we just produced everything in a hurry. And everybody was, everybody's, uh, was on, the, on the same page. Uh, and, and we'll see that more and more. So if you want energy independence, decrease your demand and use the resource that you have locally uh, and reduce the, in, uh, the dependence. So I'll tell you, as a, uh, as a, just as a, a reference, I have in my hand here, hot off the press, a book I just wrote called wow. The Thread of Energy, The Thread of Energy. And it's just about energy is tied up to everything. 
uh, and uh, there's a, there's chapters in geopolitics and climate change and business and and uh, all sorts of other things. So, but and the whole point of it is the whole point, and I teach a course on this called the Thread of Energy. The point being that energy is tied to everything; you can't get away from it. And that, um, and I tell my students that means you have lots of job opportunities. But on the other hand, uh, energy is tied to everything, and if you think about the energy connection, you realize that if you can just move toward a more sustainable energy future, a lot of other things are going to fall into place. A lot of other things will fall into place. The environmental uh, impacts will decrease. Uh, your, in, your interdependencies will decrease. Your, your international uh, trade uh, will become less uh, important. You don't have to make concessions to countries that you don't like and so many other things. So if you just keep in mind that there's energy is involved in everything you do, then um, and 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 think about it in terms of your own lifestyle. Uh, we can, we can move the ball down the field, I think. Uh, and and the U.S. has got tremendous resources. We just we just tend to go to other countries because it, you know they might be cheaper there. But but we can we can become independent on an awful lot of things in this country. We'll be right back after this. You talked about this gentleman at the gym talking about if, you know, we need it because it'll help gas prices go down. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. would it not help lower U.S. gas prices? Well, he's thinking of gas prices going down quickly. Um, gas prices are, of course, related to crude oil prices. And those prices are set at the international level. So whatever we do in this country is not going to have an effect quickly. And and though Biden has released, you know, over a million uh, barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, that helps, but that's four or five percent of our total uh, total demand. It is it is politically it looks pretty good, and it it helps a little, but but boy, by the time that all gets into the the, the entire network of oil movement around this country and gets refined and put into the form of uh, natural of gasoline rather, and distributed to the gas pump, boy, that's going to take a while. So. It uh, it first of all, it's not going to have a fa- not going to have a quick effect, um, and and secondly, um, the the oil prices are set internationally and they're not set locally, so there's another reason why it doesn't matter really that much, and then third is a more philosophical argument, and that is you know you, you might actually have to pay a little bit more for a lot of things that you're not paying as much uh, for now just because it's it's better in the long run uh, for the climate, for everything else. I, I mean, I, you go to England, it's already eight or nine dollars a, bar- a, a, a gallon for oil, for gasoline, eight or nine dollars a gallon for gasoline. And because they have high taxes, we, we get we're so used to having low prices of gasoline. So maybe the positive will be, uh, you know, well, instead of people going out and getting these big, gigantic uh, Humvees and and uh, suburbans and SUVs and so forth, they go back to using a little bit smaller car uh, or they use more public transport. Um, so, you know, they decrease the demand uh, and you're going to be more independent. Mm. And how could the expansion, um, how could that have helped or harmed shipping oil to and from Canada? 
Well, it's uh, certainly Canada wants us to take the oil. They're happy to have us take the oil. They can make a lot of money off of it. Uh, they've invested, you know, tens of billions of dollars into the oil sand. So for them, the, the investment is there. They want to make money off of the investment. So again, uh, relatively few people are going to make a lot of money off of oil sands. Now, but is, is that the way you want to go for the public at large? So you just think, well, there's a few people going to make a lot of money and there's going to be a lot of people going to suffer the long-term in, uh, com, uh, consequences of that. Is that the really way you really want to go? So we tend to think in short terms, uh, very short time frames. Uh, but I'm thinking a little bit longer time frames. I'm thinking of my grandson. I'm thinking of my daughter. Um, is in the long run, this is not the way we, in my opinion, not the way we should be going. Uh, we should we should uh, be trying to get ourselves away from fossil fuels, not encourage them. Uh, and and given the fact that it's it's very dirty oil, uh, and that um, there are alternatives, and that most of that oil uh, was going to go abroad anyway, and that we're exporting our oil, so it's not going to affect the price much. It's not going to affect it in, our independence much, uh, and it's a high price to pay. Mm. So that that's kind of that's my takeaway from having looked into this, you know, with, 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 with some attention over the years uh, and other people have other opinions, but, but uh, I think uh, I would rather not, I'd rather do without it than, than, than have it go through myself. And speaking of takeaways, I'll, I'll wrap this up with a final question. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most important thing to know about the Keystone pipeline? Uh, we don't need it. <laughs> If you want a real succinct answer, we don't, <laughs> we don't need the, the oil uh, and it is moving in the wrong direction with regard to climate change. I'm extremely concerned about the climate uh, and we need to do everything we can to send the message that business as usual is not going to get us to the future in any kind of uh, good shape. We need to move in another direction. That's the bottom line. And if we don't need it and it's dirty oil and why would you move in that direction when we've got a real significant problem with climate change? We need to move away, I think, in the other direction, move away from fossil fuels. So that, that's my kind of takeaway for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, and it's a more philosophical argument. But as we say, everything's tied up to everything. So everybody has their own opinion. Mm. And, and as I say in my class, uh, a couple of things, my wife tells me these things. She's, two things she tells me. Uh, she said, um, uh, professors just talk until they make a point. And, <laughs> and, uh, so, <laughs> and I tell my students, everyone's entitled to my opinion. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. So there you I mean, go. So everyone's that's, that's yeah, yeah, everyone's entitled to my opinion. Well, look, so I mean, that's, opinions yeah, that, are allowed in this country, so that's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, my, my kind of the bottom line on the Keystone XL pipeline is um, I think we'd be better off without it. Okay. Yeah. And, and look, I think we can all agree that we want to do what's best for our environment. We just need to figure out an alternative then. If we can't do one thing because it's too harmful, we need to figure out how to do another thing so that we can still operate and function how we want to while mm -hmm. also saving the environment. So that's the million dollar yeah. question, right? And once you figure it out, I will vote for you for president. <laughs> all <that>? right. Well, <laughs> okay. I'll, 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 I'll wait for that endorsement. 
right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the Keystone Pipeline. Number one, the pipeline runs from Alberta to Nebraska to bring about 800,000 barrels of oil per day. The oil doesn't come from drilling into the grounds, but rather through a heating process that uses a lot of natural gas to separate the oil from the sand and the tar sands of northeastern Canada. Number two, Arguments for the pipeline include the fact that transport is safer and more efficient. It could also help us produce our own oil. But on the other side, Martin says we export a lot of that oil anyway, and the Keystone Pipeline doesn't give us that much oil in the grand scheme of things. And number three, when it comes to the environment, Martin believes most of the opposition is not necessarily against the pipeline. It's the idea that you are enhancing the future of fossil fuels. Other environmental arguments at a local level include running it through aboriginal lands, leakage, digging through habitats, etc. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Keystone XL Pipeline. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.